You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you, and open our hearts to love you. Help us to behold wondrous things out of your word. In your son Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to read this Jeremiah passage just one more time. It's just three verses, so it shouldn't take long, just so it's front of mind. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The word of the Lord. Um, I went to Mississippi State University, graduated six, seven years ago. So obviously big Mississippi State fan here for better in like late spring and early summer when baseball season comes around and like maybe a little bit for worse late in the fall at the end of football season. Um, a couple years ago, State was looking for a head football coach and after the standard kind of interview process, they ended up with a guy named Joe Moorhead who was then offensive coordinator at Penn State. He got off the plane in Columbus, Mississippi, about 20 miles outside of Starkville, but it's the closest airport to, uh, to Starkville, Mississippi. And uh, he came down the steps of the plane and rolled onto the tarmac. And in the press footage of this day, you can hear him asking players what their ring size is. You can hear him telling Nick Fitzgerald, the quarterback at the time, that he better make room on his mantelpiece for a Heisman Trophy. Now anybody who's been a Mississippi State fan for like any length of time knows like this is probably like, look, nothing's impossible with God, like Luke 2 is true, but um, like there are some things that are just a little bit beyond the pale. Um, you know, the implication being obviously that national titles and myriad trophies are in the future of this Mississippi State football team. Now you can fast forward the clock just a couple of years and State and Joe Moorhead parting ways. No, no title to speak of, national or otherwise, um, and no Heisman Trophy for sure. See, promises were made, but promises were not kept. See, promises only matter if the one who makes them is able to keep them. We've got before us tonight a passage in which God, the only person to keep every promise he's ever made, makes a promise to his people. You shouldn't be shocked to find out then that he keeps this promise in the form of the Lord Jesus. We're going to dive into these three verses here, and we're going to do it in two points, just to give you guys a little roadmap and to give me some guardrails. Uh, first, the Messiah's person. Second, the Messiah's work. First, who is this righteous branch? Who is this Messiah that God's promised to his people? And second, what can we expect him to do? So what do we know about the person that God has promised to his people in these three verses? We know, first of all, that he's a fulfillment of the promise that God has made to his people, Israel, and to his people, Judah, in the past. 
Now, what was this promise, we might ask, right? There are a lot of promises in the Bible. Which one specifically is God, through Jeremiah, referring to? Now, it's a promise, I think, that goes all the way back to the garden. It's a promise that predates even Israel and Judah um, as ethnic groups. See, after Adam and Eve's sin, God's relationship with humanity fundamentally changes. Adam and Eve are cast out of God's immediate presence. Their relationship, excuse me, with each other is broken. Their relationship with the land and with the animals is broken as well. Sin enters the world never to leave, really, for the foreseeable future. Now, after all this happens, God's response is to make a promise to Adam and Eve He says, even though you've eaten from this tree from which I told you not to eat, I promise to bring about someone who will crush this serpent's head, who will defeat the devil and all the results of what he's done, namely uh, sin and death. And now throughout the rest of the Bible, this promise gets clarified more and more in the promises that God will make to Noah and then to Abraham and then to Moses and then to David and then these prophetic books to the people of Israel. Now, all this clarifying notwithstanding, God's promise remains the same. God will come to save his people, not only from their sins, but from the effects thereof, right? It's not just the guilt that Jesus is saving us from, it's the carnage that sin wreaks in our lives that he'll ultimately come to save us from as well. So here in Jeremiah 33, however many years later, however many years on from the garden, God's doubling down on that very same promise. Who will the Messiah be? He'll be a fulfillment of God's promise to his people from the very beginning. Secondly, we know that this Messiah will be a righteous branch. It's kind of an odd image. It's only used really in this sort of prophetic section of the Bible. Um, It's used mostly here in Jeremiah and Isaiah and then a little bit in Zechariah. And it's used almost always to speak of God's coming Messiah. Usually the righteous branch image is used in relation to David here, David's father, Jesse. Um, And now what the Bible is saying with this image is that this person, this righteous branch, will be a new growth off the stump of David. Now, this is good news. You might ask, why is this good news? The three kings that follow King Josiah, and it's his... Man, I'm just smacking this thing all over the place. Uh, the three kings that follow King Josiah, who, under whom uh, Jeremiah does a lot of his prophetic work and is really the last great king of Judah. Um, we have like King Jehoahaz for like a hot second, and then he gets deposed, and we get King Jehoiachin, Right? Um, or sorry, Jehoiakim first, his son Jehoiachin, and then King Zedekiah follows those two. Now these are the last three Davidic kings really of the kingdom of Judah, and all three of these kings are trash bags. Like they are not good kings. They lead God's people away from himself, and they lead them into idolatry and into exile in Babylon. Ultimately, God finally says, I have had enough of you people with your feasts for new moons and all this other stuff, but you treat widows and orphans terribly, so y'all get to spend 70 years in Babylon. 
So, great news that we've got a righteous branch, a new growth coming off this stump of David. We don't want the old growth, right? We've had that. We've had the idolatry. We've had the exile into Babylon. We don't need any of that anymore. What we need is a righteous branch to righteously and truthfully lead his people into God's presence, not away from God's presence. See, these three kings promise God's people safety and security. They deliver neither of those things to God's people. In fact, they deliver quite the opposite. They can't follow through on their promises. They turn out to be completely and totally untrustworthy. But if this branch is righteous, he'll always do what's right. And if he always does what's right, he'll never lie. And if he'll never lie, his promises are always kept. So this is who this Messiah is. One, the fulfillment of a promise and a righteous and trustworthy branch off the stump of David. So what's he going to do, right? What's the cash value of who this Messiah is Right, if we've got this nice Messiah, but he just sits over in the corner and doesn't do anything, it doesn't really mean anything for you and I. So what kind of actions can we look for to validate who God says this Messiah is? Well, first, according to this text, we can count on him to save his people and cause them to dwell securely. Now, this promise is made to Judah and Jerusalem. Don't let that trip you up. Um, for purposes of this passage, you read Judah and Jerusalem and just think people of God, just think God's people. Don't think geographic area in the ancient Near East, just think God's people. Um, and so God makes this promise to his people. But what does this mean? That God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, will cause us, will save us and cause us to dwell securely. At the very least, it means this. You, I, we've all probably got a lot of things in your life you'd like to be saved from. Maybe it's a financial tightness that comes at the end of the month. Maybe it's a first holiday season without family members. Shoot, maybe it's the holiday season with family members. <laughs> maybe it's a dark prognosis or a really tough, tough mental health struggle. Let me tell you something. And right here, in this moment, God might not save you from those things, this side of glory. He might not make you dwell securely from those things right now and in this moment, on this side of heaven. But let me tell you something else. None of those things are your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is how you a sinful person can relate to a holy God. You might say, Tucker, I'm a good person. I don't, you know, I don't really kill. I don't really steal. I don't like physically hurt anybody. And, you know, hey, same, cheers and amen, far as I know. But I know when I lay down at night and I think about things I've done and said and thought, I have, like Paul says, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's it. That's all that disqualifies you. 
from standing before a holy God. Paul is right when he says that there's no one out there, no one who naturally understands, no one who naturally seeks God. Your biggest problem is how you will stand before that holy God at the last day. But here's the good news. The same God to whom you and I are held accountable is a merciful, compassionate, saving God who desires to cover that sin with his own sacrifice, the life and death of his son, Jesus. In this side of, of glory, these material and temporal struggles you experience, they might not come to a resolution. They might not. But your own standing before a holy God has come to a resolution in Christ. God is definitely saving you from your sin, and he's definitely saving you to himself, even if he doesn't save you from the struggles of this temporal life. Now, Jesus doesn't just offer a covering. God in his son doesn't just offer a covering for your sin and for my sin. He offers a secure dwelling, right? It's not just like Jesus covers you once with his righteousness and then says he'll touch base with you at the pearly gates one day. Jesus is constantly offering you a secure dwelling. Right before this pandemic started in earnest, my wife and I went to Hawaii for a few days and we stayed at the Fairmont on Maui. We won this trip on Instagram, hence this like nice hotel flex up here. I didn't think that actually happened. Like I thought you entered these sweepstakes and you just got scammed or they like put your email address into some hopper and you got spammed for the rest of your life. It's true, like they do happen. You can win things off of Instagram, exhibit A. Um, look, I'll be honest with you guys, like until we got on to that American Airlines flight, I was like, this isn't real, man. We're about to walk up there with like a week's worth of luggage and they're going to be like, this ticket's like not, like a six-year-old drew this. This is not a real ticket. <laughs> but alas, we got on the plane. We landed in Maui. They welcomed us at the hotel. Man, you walk into the Fairmont and there's like somebody there to put the lay on your neck. They're offering you this fresh guava juice. Like these people are your best friends when you check into the hotel. Like, they are so kind. Y'all, they know everything about you. They're like, man, how's your mom? Your grandma still got that foot thing going on. Man, I'm sorry to hear that. They're so kind. Man, they're like bringing you towels, all kinds of stuff. But you know what happens if you're checking out on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. and you're still in your room at 10.05? The person in the Hawaiian shirt who gave you that fresh guava juice, that's not the person who's coming to your door. Okay, is a very large male in like a black shirt that says security. I imagine this like can't speak to that from experience, but they will kick you out of the Fairmont. If you try to stay, overstay, you're welcome. See, as nice as the Fairmont was, they didn't offer us a secure dwelling in any sense of the word. Our staying there was contingent on our willingness you know, company who we won this trip from's willingness to pay an obscene amount of money per night. Jesus is the exact opposite. If you believe in Jesus, man, 
He is your secure dwelling. He is the home you live in. He is the driveway you come back to every day. You'll never get kicked out because of your inability to pay. In fact, that's the only condition for Jesus to be your secure dwelling is that you do not pay. The only thing you could possibly offer to Jesus is the sin that made your salvation necessary in the first place. Okay, so Jesus saves his people and causes them to dwell securely. We can call that almost the like micro aspect of the Messiah's work. It's like the individual piece of what Jesus does. The story doesn't end there. Jesus also does this sort of corporate or what you might call a macro level work. And the more of the world I see, the more this aspect of Jesus' work matters to me. And that is that we can count on him, as this text says, to execute justice and righteousness. Jesus offers you and I things on a personal level that the world will never be able to offer us. True happiness, true fulfillment, cheers and amen. Um, I'm with that for sure. But Jesus is also in the business of reversing the effects of sin, not just covering your sin itself. Everything that's a result of the fall in Genesis 3, sin, death, sickness, sorrow, pain, cancer, Alzheimer's, Jesus will beat back fully at the end of the age. And that's the promise that's being made here in this text. That's what he's doing in his miracles throughout the Gospels. These aren't just like cute party tricks that Jesus does to kind of like sort of prove he's different than us, right? He's not like turning water into wine in Cana in John 2 or 3 because, you know, the bridegroom like got out ahead of his skis on his alcohol bill a little bit. No, like Jesus is doing these miracles to show you and to show me, one, that he's God himself, the second person of the Trinity, but also that he's reversing the effects of the fall in Genesis 3, right? We've got blindness in the Gospels, gone. Lameness, gone. Death, John 11 with Lazarus and Jesus himself, gone. These miracles are the God's down payment on an ultimate end to all sin, death, and sorrow. I spent three years in divinity school studying Greek and Hebrew and theology and philosophy and I got out three and a half years later just to have the Jesus Storybook Bible say this better than anything I read over those seven semesters. On the last page, it says, there's coming a day when Jesus will make all the bad things untrue. That's what it means to execute justice and righteousness, to take everything that's unjust and unrighteous in this sinful world and reverse it and make it right and make it whole and peaceful and tranquil again. Cancer, gone. Alzheimer's, gone. Unjust housing policies, gone. Uh, unjust treatment of certain groups of people will one day be gone because of what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. 
You might look out these doors, those doors, you watch the news or get on Twitter and think, man, it's really hard to hold on to that promise. Things are dark in this day and age. But it's just as hard to place some faith in that promise back back in Jeremiah's day as it is now. When Jeremiah's writing this book, the Israelites are in the throes of a horrid exile. The proverbial darkness is so dark, you can't see the hand in front of your face almost. And yet God says in verse 14, Behold, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming. And I know it's dark now, but the days are coming. I know you're far away from the temple and everything you've built your life around, but the days are coming. This entire life that you've built for yourself is, is gone, but the days are coming when my righteous branch, my own son, will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Man, that's hard to hold on to. But from Genesis to Revelation, God has a way of working in the darkest of moments. From one speck of light in a pitch black room that grows and expands until it lights the entire place. What the world means for evil, God will use for good. Genesis 50, 20. It was a tree that plunged this world into sin, I think it's worth noting. And a tree on which the Son of God was hung. And yet, God will execute justice and righteousness through a branch from the tree of David, nonetheless. Just one last thing before we close. I think it's really worth asking ourselves, who or what is promising you something that they or it cannot deliver on? What's out there that's promising you true happiness or fulfillment? I, you know, seek the Holy Spirit's guidance on this one. Is it your bank account? Is it a certain number that you'll see in your region's app? And at that point, you will be happy and fulfilled. Is it a certain title on your business card that when you see it, you will be happy and fulfilled? Maybe it's a certain relationship. Maybe you think having kids or being married will ultimately make you happy or fulfilled. All those things are, are good things in and of themselves, but none of them can keep the promises they're making to you. None of these things, no address, no job, no paycheck, no relationship, can bear the weight that our expectations place on them. Only the triune God of the Bible keeps his promises 100% of the time. He's the only one since the beginning of time who's batting a thousand in terms of keeping his word. So seek his word and seek him in his word and commune with him in prayer this week. Draw near to him as he draw near, draws near to you. Ask him to reveal to you what you might be seeking to fulfill you. Ask him what it is that you think you can't live without. I want to encourage you to really seek the Lord this week and do some soul work with him. Allow him to chisel away these pieces of my heart of stone, of your heart of stone, and replace it with little pieces of flesh. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks for the work of your son Jesus for us. 
We ask that you would impress it upon our minds, that you would go with us forward and um, really help us to meditate on all the things that you've done for us. In your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.